may be seated this morning. While you're being seated, our little ones are invited to Children's Church this morning. Good to have their voices back in the sanctuary with us as well. While they're making their way out, let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word or turn on your device and look with me at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're making our way through the book of 1 John. We're walking through 1 John together, and so we're excited about that. Hold on, Miss Kim, we got a few more coming. There we go. We're working through 1 John together, and so I invite you to take out your copy of God's Word as we continue uh, to do that. We find ourselves in the fall, and that means football season, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful that some of those games are being able to be played, and, and one of the things that always comes to mind during football season is the coach's pregame speech. The coach will gather the team up. All the practice has been done. All the preparation has been done. All the film has been studied. All the plans have been put in place. And then the coach will gather the team up right before they begin to start the game. And he will give the motivational speech. He will try his very best to use the right words and the right cadence in the right way in order to get the very last drop of effort and reflection and intelligence about the game out of his players. He wants everything they can give, and so he will give the motivational speech. Motivational speeches are such a big deal that, that it's become an industry. In fact, over at the University of Alabama, Nick Saban, very famously known for his ability to motivate people, will bring in other legends in order to motivate his team. In 2018 and 19, he brought in people like Daryl Strawberry, former MLB star, or... Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, brought him to speak to the team before they go and play. He even brought in Mike Tyson to speak to the team about mistakes and getting back up and going again, right? That's pretty funny. But the idea is, is that it's big business. It's big business. In fact, Tony Robbins, a very famous motivational speaker that travels the world trying to help people assume the best out of life, you can go to a Tony Robbins motivational speech conference, which is just a one-day conference, if you'll pay the small price of $700 per ticket. You can have Tony Robbins come speak to your organization if you'll shell out a million bucks for his speech. Magic Johnson will come for 600000 so you can get a deal for him. But the idea is, is that motivation is a big deal. And but while we laugh at that, because if, if, if any of you said, I'm going to pay $700 to go see Tony Robbins, I would first smack you with the Bible. Uh, and That was a joke, by the way. Uh, and then we would discuss the idea of motivation. But we all need motivation. We're all needing some sort of motivation. It starts at a young age. Child. If you'll be quiet when we go into this adult meeting, we'll get ice cream afterwards. That's motivation. If your grades come up, you'll get a bicycle. That, that's motivation. At your job, if you do a good job, you might get a bonus or a promotion or an extra day off around the holidays. That's motivation. We do this in our personal life. If I make it to this weight, I'm going to buy new clothes. That's motivation. If I pay off my debt, I'm going on that vacation. Motivation. We're constantly in need of, of stirring up in us a desire to do something. Well, this is not lost on our Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ and, and God our Father throughout the Scripture understands that we are feeble and frail and that we're tossed to and fro by the things of this world, that we get weighed down, that we get sad, that our emotions rage from one end to the other, and that we are in constant need of motivation. We always need inspiration. 
We need one more reason to wake up and face the day. We need one more encouragement to know when the road is hard, when the way seems lonely, when the temptation is great, when everybody else is going the wrong direction. We need that motivation to stay the course, to stay in the right way, to to do the right thing. That's exactly what John will do in our text today. In 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, John will lay out for us the motivation for following or going after the things of God. In fact, I simply just titled the message this way, Motivation for the War. Now those of us who have come to Christ, or those of us that are trying to walk the narrow way, that are trying to find the Lord Jesus, we understand that all through Scripture, there is this understanding that we're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle against the things of the, of the evil one, of Satan, of sin, of fallenness, of the world. We're in a battle against those things. And the battle can rage on. And it can wear us down. We can find ourselves being hurt or broken by the things of this world. And we're in need of motivation. And so what John does in verses 15 and 17, or 15 through 17, is he gives us a command, an imperative. In fact, if you look in your Bible at verse 15, it will read something like this. Do not love the world. He will tell us this is the command. This is the battle. This is the fight. We go to war every day to turn ourselves from the fallenness of this world and turn towards the Lord. But before he gives us the command in verse 15, in verses 12 through 14, he will give us some motivation. Now, brothers and sisters, I I want for just a moment for you to hear me very clearly. In, In verses 12 and 13 and 14, John writes a song, a poem. In fact, if you look in your Bible, it's probably in paragraph form different than the paragraphs around it. It is written out almost as a song. John, in the middle of his letter writing to the church, busts out into song. He busts into poetry and he sings over the church. And everything he describes in verse 12 and 13 and 14 are all centered around what we have because of Christ Jesus. He reminds us of the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ. What's been given to us, what's been done for us, what's been solidified in the Lord Jesus, what God has sung over us for all eternity. And so in those verses, we will see again how wonderful it is to be in the family of God. He will stir in us this uh, affection for the Lord because we have work to do. We have a battle to go forward in. But before he gets to the battle, like every good hero movie, he'll give the speech to the troops. He'll remind them of what we're doing. Join me in your Bible in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Let me read through verse 17, and you'll see what I mean. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know from whom the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong in the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Can you can you hear the song in his voice? Now, listen, here comes the imperative. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides 
forever. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning as we find ourselves uh, approaching the battle. Lord, teach us what it means to follow you and to run after you and to, to, to know just what you've done for us and how marvelous it is. Father, help us to see that the beauty of this passage from John, that, that, he, has, that he has reminded us of, of what we have in Christ. That we are, again, motivated. We are inspired. We are stirred up so that we can go into battle, so that we can face tomorrow, so we can go to war against this fallen world around us. Lord, I pray over the next few moments as we think about what Jesus has done for us and the call to response that we are to give. I, I pray, Father, for, for each one under the sound of my voice, whether, whether in the room or, or watching online, Lord, I pray that every person in this room can say with clarity that they have, they have Jesus, that they've been forgiven, that they're overcomers, that they, that they know Christ as their Savior, and that every person who, who claims that, who declares that, will have a fresh zeal to serve you, to go after you, to love you. Father, build us up today by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of reminder in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, and he'll pick this theme up again later through the book. John is primarily writing to churches around Ephesus, we believe, and these are churches that he would have helped plant, he would have helped pastor. He is the, probably the last living apostle, the last one to see Jesus alive. He's certainly much older in age at this point, and he's writing back to the church because the church has, over time, allowed these heretics to come in and begin to teach a different gospel. We saw this clearly in chapter 1 and in the first part of chapter 2 where they're discussing that sin's not really a big deal or that you can uh, confess to be with God but it really doesn't change your behavior. All of these things that are, that are not true in the Christian walk and John, being the old sage, being the wise apostle, is writing to them and saying, no, 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 that's not how it is. And then he even tells them in, in chapter 2 and, and the end of chapter 1, he says, I was there. I saw Jesus. I know what he said. Listen to me. I'm, I'm trying to tell you. And so for the first part of the book, he is hammering the heretics. But now he turns his attention. He turns his attention from hammering in on doctrine to looking at the church who's been uh, ravaged by these uh, false teachers, and he begins to encourage them. He begins to, like an old grandfather, put his arms around his little children and say, now, let me help you. Let me love you. Let me encourage you. You, He begins to talk to them in a way that would inspire them. And so in this text, we have this war. Don't love the world. That's the war we're all in. But he gives us two ideas walking into it. And so if you think of the war as a fight, then the first part would be simply this. He gives us the inspiration to fight. He gives us the reason to fight. We find this in this poetry of verses 12 through 14. He stirs in our heart this, this motivational speech. Picture in your mind that we've gathered for battle and we're on the battlefield and then the, the king or the general comes to give us that final speech. The, the coach comes to stir us one more time. And this is John's way of doing, excuse me, doing that in verses 12 through 14, he is encouraging us. Notice with me a few things about verses 12 through 14. Let me show you this inspiration that we have as believers to live for the Lord. First, you will see there is repetition. The reason for repetition is because of emotion. John is bursting with emotion. He is writing poetry and song to his church. He is overflowing with the love that he has for them and the love that he wants them to see in Christ. 
He writes as one who cares deeply for them. John is is speaking to them with this emotion of love, this character of one who cares deeply about the church. And I, I want you to notice a couple of things. First, I want you to notice the titles that he uses. Look in your Bible, you'll see them. They're repetitive. The first verse there in verse 12, he says, little children. He'll use that verse again a little bit further down. The word little will be dropped, but he'll say children. And so we find that. And then you'll look in the second part of the verses and you'll see that he says young men or fathers first. And then he says young men. Now we must pay close attention to these titles. Remember that he's writing poetry. So every word on the surface doesn't really mean the surface. You know as well as I do that when we read poetry, we're supposed to not just read the words. We're supposed to feel the emotions and understand the context and be drawn into the the feelings of the poet. And so let us draw into John's feelings as he uses these titles. The first title, Little Children, is the net for the whole church. He writes to the whole church. He says, my little children. Children. Now, this is the apostle who started the church, who brought the witness of Christ to the people of Ephesus, along with Paul and Peter and Timothy and Titus. And so we have him writing as one who cares for the whole church. And so he says, my little children. Now, there's something there we should stop and understand. We should stop and understand this, that every person in the church is family. That we're all part of the family, that we're all included in the conversation of family. He says to the church, my little children, this affection, this love for the family. But notice with me the other titles that he uses. Look in your Bible there at verse 12 and 13 and then down again in 14 and 15. He will say, you fathers. Then he will say, young men. Now, he is not writing to just the males in the church that have children. He's not writing to just the males in the church that are young. He's using these titles as a figurative way of casting the net to everybody included in the church. He's not excluding women. He's not excluding senior adults. That's not his purpose for these titles. His purpose for these titles is to simply show us that in the church there are spiritual fathers and mothers Those that have walked with the Lord, those that are leaders in the church, those that are standing over with great grace and can look back on their life and show the journey of their faithfulness. But also in the church, there are youngins. There are children of the faith. There are those who have just come to the knowledge of the Lord. There are those that are just stumbling through this narrow path. There are those that are just finding their way on the journey there. And here's the beauty of the text that we must see. When he says little children, and when he says fathers and young children, he's declaring that every person in the church comes the same way. That every person in the church has the same standing before the Lord. So John, the apostle, the sage, the wisdom of God left to us to write into Scripture, John, the very pinnacle of Christian faith, gets into heaven the same way that Martin does. Through Jesus. And so he reminds us that while we go on this journey, let us be clear. We are family. And every child and adult, every new believer and old believer, one who's come to Christ today and one who's been with Christ for decades, we all come the same way through the cross. My little children. He writes there uh, uh, this idea, this beauty. But not only do we see the titles, I want you to see what he says about it. Notice with me now, here's where the meat of the motivation comes from, the inspiration. Notice what he says we have as the church. 
He says, you young children have it. You old fathers have it. Everybody in the church has it. This is for everybody. This is for all believers. This is for everyone who's come through the cross. This is for everyone in the body of Christ. Notice what he tells us we have. Here's some promises for you. Here's some motivation. You want to be stirred up to love the Lord Jesus? Listen to what he says is true for us. Here's what he will give us. He will give us three promises that we have now that we are in Christ. Promise number one, we are forgiven. Look at verse 12. He says in verse 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Is there a sweeter thing to know than your sins are forgiven? Is there a more beautiful statement than the Father in heaven to say, this one's forgiven. Their sins are washed away. This one belongs to me. No longer is the stain of sin laid on their shoulder. No longer is brokenness the title of their resume. No longer is their filth and guilt separating them from me. No longer is the wrath of God's judgment that's poured out on sin against us. But here he says, because we are children of God, because we've been invited in, here is the most beautiful motivation for all of us to love the Lord Jesus and serve him with all of our heart. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. Your, your goodness that you thought you had is, is no more needed to try to, try to pull yourself up to God because, because now you're, you're forgiven. You're right. You stand before the Lord. And notice the phrase. Look there in verse 12. Your sins are forgiven. It's not past tense. It's not, well, they once were forgiven, but you better keep working at it. It's not, well, they, they were forgiven the day you received Christ, but you've sinned so much since then. You, you've cast yourself out of forgiveness. No, this is a present tense active verb. Your sins are forgiven, which means, brothers and sisters, when you come to Christ, your sins from behind you are forgiven. Your sins from in front of you are forgiven. They are always and forever forgiven, never to be condemned no more. When you stand before God, the slate is clean. It will be clean. It's always clean. You are forgiven. So what does this mean? This means whatever vile sin you think has disqualified you from the Lord is not true. That's from Satan. Because because John says when you're a little child of God, you're forgiven. You know what this means? You might say, well, pastor, I don't have any vile sins, but I got a pile of them. Forgiven. Slate clean. This is, the, this is the motivation of the believer that when we come to Christ, we are forgiven. And, and notice how we're forgiven. Look at verse 12 again. Because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Now let us just sit on this for a moment. Let us think about this for just a second. He is reminding us not only how we were forgiven, but why we've forgiven for His name's sake. All through the Bible, we find the understanding that God will save people for His glory. That his name is proclaimed when the sinner is saved. That his goodness reigns when the sinner is saved. And so for his name's sake, we are saved. Now, what does this mean? This means this, brothers and sisters, there's hope in this. There's glory in this. Why? Because I don't have to do it. In fact, I can't do it. No amount of work or effort or bribery, no amount of morality will ever garner me into the kingdom of God. None will ever pledge me into the faithfulness of God. Nothing I can do with my own hands will allow me to be forgiven. I can try and try and try again, and I will never reach forgiveness on my own. But because of the loving kindness of God, for His name's sake, I am forgiven. For His glory, I am forgiven. This is the grace of the gospel. 
We are forgiven not because what we have done. We are forgiven because what God has done for us. We are forgiven by His name. But the name here also reminds us of how we enter in. We are forgiven because the name of God will be praised. But we are forgiven because the name of Jesus has saved us. Think with me for just a moment in the New Testament text. We find Romans 10, 13. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus shall be saved. Acts chapter 4. There is no other name given among men that which you can be saved, but Jesus. Jesus is the name that saves us. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the warrior. Jesus is the king that redeems his children. Jesus has done this. In fact, John writing in his gospel account of the story of Jesus in the gospel of John would get near the end of the book. And he would tell us, why did I write all this down for you? Why did I record all this gospel for you? In John chapter 20, verse 31, hear his his answer here this morning. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving you may have life in his, say it with me, name, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you want to know why it's worthy to take up the cause of following the Lord? Because Jesus has forgiven us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. I imagine that if you or your child were in grave danger, you find yourself on the railroad tracks and the train is barreling down, you find yourself in in a predicament where you're about to lose your life, your, your decisions have led to you where you're about to lose your life. And I imagine that while you're, you're on that railroad track, a, a friend, a neighbor, a brother, a sister dives in and rescues off that railroad track. I imagine that that act of saving you will cause you to cherish that friend like never before for the rest of your life. You will bake every cake and pie you can think of and deliver it to their house. You will want to cut their grass, babysit their kid. Well, that might be a stretch. You'll want to watch them and care. Why? Because you've been motivated by what's been done for you. And this is exactly what John says. John says, oh, brothers and sisters, it's worthy. It's worth serving the Lord because he has forgiven you. Washed your sins away. Let me show you a second motivation from the text. Not only are we Uh, forgiven, uh, we are adopted. Why else should we follow the Lord? Notice what John does in this poetry. He says in here in verse 13, because you know him. And then down in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Notice that word know there. This is not an intellectual understanding. I know Michael Jordan. I have some knowledge of Martha Stewart. I can give you some facts about Kay Ivey. I, I know those people. But when we talk about no, we certainly have different levels of knowledge. I I can give you some facts about Michael Jordan, but I know my wife. I have a relationship with my family. I I know them. I'm I'm walking with them. And so what John does here is he says, here's a reason why serving the Lord is so good. Here's a reason for the motivation to serve the Lord. Not only are your sins forgiven, but you are know him, which means you've been allowed into his family. Now, let us not miss this. Brothers and sisters, God is holy. And the only people allowed in his presence are those that are holy. The only people that are invited to the banquet table are those that are clean and without sin. And you and I left to ourselves would never get an invitation to that table. 
We would never be admitted in because of the sin that plagues us, because of the sin that holds us down, because of the tarnishment of our soul. But yet through Christ, because he has forgiven us, now, now we are adopted. Now we are included. Now we are called sons and daughters of the Most High King. Now we are in the family of God, not slaves any longer, not outcasts any longer, not those that will be put to a side, but invited in as the prodigal son ran home and the father says, throw a bank quit my family's here this is what we see in John's motivation that we are now with the Lord we are the family of God he is my father oh that I would serve him oh that I would take up the calls and run after him because he has made me his own he has rescued me in the book of Galatians Paul would describe it this way he would say but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son, Jesus, born under woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive, here it is, adoptions as sons. We are no longer separated from God from our sin. And it's not this that God forgives us. He could do that and it would be enough. But he forgives us and then invites us to be family. He brings us into his home, into his promises, into his goodness. You ever think about bragging on your parents or those around you. I, I think about schoolboys who are on the playground and they, they usually end up saying something like, well, my daddy, well, my daddy, and they begin to talk, or my granddad, my mom, and they begin to brag. I'm reminded of three boys who were bragging on their father. The first boy said, let me tell you about my dad. He, he scribbles words down on a piece of paper and they call it a poem and he gets 50 bucks for that piece of paper. The next boy said, well, I can beat that. My daddy scribbles words down on a paper. They call it a song and give him a hundred bucks for it. Third boy said, I got you all beat. My daddy stands up every week, proclaims a message that he heard. It takes four people to take up the money after the service. <laughs> we we want to brag on our father. Can I tell you about my father? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Can I tell you about my father? He is the creator of all things. He holds angels, armies at his command. Can I tell you about my father? He sees all things. Can I tell you about my father? He's already told me about the victory and the winning time that will come. My father spreads out a banquet. My father never leaves us nor forsakes us. My father never doubts, never turns. There is no shadow in him. My father always listens. My father always loves. My father always forgives. Let me tell you about my father. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what John does. He grabs the troops, he pulls in the church, and he says, don't ever forget it. You are forgiven, and you are adopted. And then he gives us one more motivation in this poem. Look down at the last part, verse 15. He says these words, and I know that you have overcome. Oh, what a great time. Verse 14, excuse me. I write this to you, young men, the second part there, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Brothers and sisters, he gives us inspiration for the war by telling us we are forgiven, we are adopted, and we are victorious. We are victorious. Notice what he says. You have overcome the evil one. Now, there's a sense here that it's overcoming, that it's a progression. 
But he's making sure we understand that when Jesus Christ came and was born under the law and lived a perfect life and went to the cross bearing our sins and bore the wrath of God poured out on sin and was killed for our transgressions and buried in our tomb, that when he rose again on Easter day, he broke the chains of death, he stranglehold the death that Satan had, he ripped it apart, and from that point forward, the fatal blow of Satan has been given, and the demise of Satan's eternal uh, damnation is coming. Jesus has won the victory. He is overcome. Now notice what John is doing. John is looking at us who are frail and broken and often defeated. We, we feel overwhelmed. John is, John is looking at us who know we, we struggle with sickness and sorrow. We struggle with death. We, we struggle with the systems of this world that it's in chaos, it seems. We feel so defeated. And then John pulls us in and says, don't you ever forget. You are forgiven. You are adopted. And you are overcomers. And the wonderful truth of it is, I'm an overcomer not because of me. Because I can overcome a few things, but I can't overcome death, hell, and the grave. I can't overcome sin. And in most days, I can't overcome finding a matching pair of socks. But in Jesus, in Jesus, I can stand tall. Not because of me, not because of my pride, but I can stand tall and say, you know what? This world is beating me every direction I can think of, but I've read the end. I'm going to win. I am victorious because of Christ. There is this motivation that John gives us. You will be victorious. You will have the victory. Oh, friend. Can I ask you a few questions before we move to the imperative? And that's simply this. Do you know God's forgiveness? Have you experienced the forgiveness that allows you to say, I, I've been washed clean and I've been adopted by the Lord? Do you understand that God is your Father? Have you, have you come into that relationship with Him? Are you able to stand on the hard days, on the lonely days, on the broken days? Not because you're, you're not mourning, not because you're not weeping. I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend that life's not hard. But in the midst of all that, are, are you able to say with your feet firmly planted, as he would say on the word of God that abides in you, that you are victorious in the Lord? Have you come to that? Do you know the Lord? I hope, brothers and sisters, that you will hear the words of John and you will sing as the song says, Oh, victory in Jesus. I hope that can be said of you. If not, let me invite you. In John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus says, and John records, that if any has received him and have believed in him, they have the right to be called sons and daughters of God. That today could be the day where you say, you know what? I need my sins forgiven. I need to know that I am adopted by God. I'm tired of this broken world that tosses me to and fro. I want to know that victory is sure. And you come to Jesus. You come to the Lord who saves and who rescues. This is the motivation. Now, let us turn to verses 15 and 16 and 17 as we look at our last thought this morning. And that's simply this. If John is giving us this inspiration, this is who we are. This is what Christ has done. He has stirred us up. He's worked us into a frenzy. The troops are ready. What do you want me to do, Lord? I'm ready for battle. Just give me the command. 
Well, in verse 15 through 17, we have the imperative. We have the command. Here's what you're supposed to do. If you're, if you're a soldier of the king, if you're in the army of God, if you've been adopted, you've been forgiven, you know that victory is yours, you know that there's nobody else you want to serve but the Lord on high, you know that he is your father, then here's what the king is commanding you to do. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. There's the command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, you have to ask yourself, what does he mean by world? The Bible uses world in, in three ways, really, throughout Scripture. The first way the world is used is just the idea of the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and we find the idea that it's the world, the cosmos, that, that just the natural creation. We say this world, the globe that's spinning, right? We, we know the world. The second way we find the word world used is not in a negative way, but in a, a way of love. This is my father's world. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. There is this idea that, that this is under God's purview and he cares for it deeply and he's there. But there's a third way that the word world is used throughout Scripture, and this is what John intends to use here, and it is the idea of the system that is opposed to God. The corruption that runs against God, those that would reject God's will and His way, that would spur His Son or spurn His Son, that would go away from Him and not want Him, and, 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 and those that are, that are fallen and broken, anything that's against the will of God, John is lumping into this idea of don't love that. Don't love the things that would pull you away from God. Notice how he says it in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So first, we have a command. Do not love the world. The command is simple. Everything that's in the, under the control of the evil one, everything that's against God, that's the opposite of God, don't love it. Don't care for it. Don't go after it. Don't move towards it. But I want you to notice something here in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the second part, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul tells us in this text that love is a direction. In fact, you might think of it this way. True affection is a direction. True affection is a direction. It leads us to do something in some way. So true love for the Lord means that I'm going to walk in the way of God, which means I'm also at the same time going to walk away from the things of the world. I'm reminded of the little kids who took the field trip to the hospital and they got to tour all around and the nurse gathered them up at the end of the tour and said, do you have any questions? Did you notice anything? And one little kid raised his hand and said, why do they wash their hands so much? And the nurse simply said, well, that's for two reasons. One, we love health and we hate germs. This is exactly what John's telling us. We love the Lord and we hate the things of the world. Now listen to me. Let me be clear. The command says, if you love God, you will walk away from the things of this world and walk towards him. And notice there's no neutral position. There's no place in here where he says, well, if you kind of love the world and kind of love God, just stay somewhere in the middle. We don't find that. We find people who are passionately in love with God, running his direction, or we find people who are walking in the way of the world. You may say you love God, but your feet will show your affection. The way in which you're moving will show what your priority is. And so here's the command, don't love the things of the world. And he says, let me show you how. Notice with me the second verse, he gives us the temptation. He says, here's how the world does this. Here's how the world entices you. We have this command. To be singularly focused, not divided, to run after Jesus, the one who saved us and adopted us and given us victory. 
But unfortunately, we're tempted. Verse 16 shows us this temptation. For all that's in the world. Then he kind of does a parenthetical here. What's in the world? What does tempt us? Here's what he says. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. He says, listen, you're going to be tempted in this battle. And here's how you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted with the desires of the flesh. The wants that you want to please yourself, that you want to go after what you want, that you're going to be about your business, you're going to be enticed and drawn in. The desires of the flesh will pull you away from God. Listen, as sinners, our default mode is the opposite of God. And we must constantly battle that now that he's changed our heart to transform our mind to not go back to the default mode of going against God. We must constantly, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would walk in the way of God. Notice the second temptation. Not only is our natural desire to go against God, but our eyes draw us away from God. Now, this is his way of echoing back to Genesis chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 3, where the Bible says that the fruit looked desirable to Eve's eye. She saw it. She liked it. We could find the same story in David of Bathsheba where it says he saw Bathsheba. His eyes went that way. Our eyes are tempted to see something that glitters and glows and try to move towards it and move in opposite of what God has called us to do. So we have to be guarded about what we're soaking in, what we're seeing, what we're desiring, what we're going after. Jesus would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount that watch out for it and if it leads you that way, pluck it out. Don't let it pull you. Away. But then notice the third thing, the, the third temptation, and that's simply this, the pride of life. The pride of life. You know, when we're listing sins in the Bible, usually the pride of life is not necessarily a sentence we form, but it's found all through Scripture. You'll find it in Romans chapter 1 where Paul is describing the sins that disqualify us. You'll find it again in Jesus' words where he talks about the pride that man has. And, and here's what he means by this, simply this. He means that we, in our own sinful desires, will go after the things that we think make us stable. Or happy. We will boast in the things that are not of God. We will go after the things that we think. Our image, our identity, we'll build it on the things that we think are worthy of others seeing, and we care not what God sees. Our image. We live in a highly polarizing society. We live in a society where social media has caused us all to believe that whatever you see online is true. That the picture's there, I'm, I, I'm reminded of this. This started before social media. Long before social media, my mama could scream her head off at us and answer the phone in a sweet voice at the same time. We, we can all flip the switch. We, some of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? We can all flip the switch. We can put the best picture on social media and not show what's happening around the frame. This is exactly what happens in our life. We believe that if we somehow in the pride of life put forward what we think will be stable, what the image we want, what we want to go after, what is our priority, then somehow those things will bring us joy and hope and life. And notice with me now the outcome. There's a, there's a command and a temptation and an outcome. Notice the outcome there in the last part of verse 16 and the verse 17. It says it's not from the Father. Now look at verse 17. He says in verse, uh, in verse 15, uh, it is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Excuse me, the end of verse 16. Now verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. He gives us the outcome. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself going after the things of this world, here's where that will lead you to death. It will pass away. It won't stand. 
It won't make it. All the promises of the world will burn away. The glitter will fade. It will not work. As Solomon, the wisest man to live, would say, vanity is vanity. It won't do you any good. And in fact, if you notice, here's what he gives us. He gives us two people, two priorities, and two outcomes. There are two people. There's the person who read verses 12 through 14 and said, I'm with Jesus. He's saved me. He's redeemed me. He's adopted me. He's given me victory. I'm going to follow him. That person says, I'm not going to love the world. I'm going to love the Lord. I'm going to run after the Lord. And that person ends up abiding forever. But then there's the second person. The second person who reads 12 through 14 and says, eh, Jesus is okay. He's a good dude. I'll get around to that later. I'm not real worried about my sin. It's not a big deal. Everybody does it. I'm okay. I'm good. I'll make it. We got plenty of money in the bank. We're healthy. Our house is nice. We're fine. Look at the world around us. We're okay. And then they get down to verse 15 and 17, and it says, Love the Lord, not the world. And you say, well, this is okay. I don't have to give this up. I don't have to turn from this. I'm fine. This is fun. This is not a big deal. We'll find security here. We'll do these things. We'll make this our priority. And notice what verse 17 tells us. That's not going to last. Now let me warn you as clearly as I can. If you do not put your hope in the Jesus of verses 12 through 14, then verse 17 will be your fate. It will fade. It will pass. It will not last. Alan Culpepper writing about this whole passage of Scripture sums it up pretty well. He says in verses 12 through 14 we have victory. And in verses... uh, 17 through 18, we have obedience. He he writes it this way. He says, victory is assured. Resistance is required. I have victory in Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to go to battle. I'm going to go to war because I love the Lord Jesus. And I know he loves me. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we come this morning having heard John give us this motivational speech. And oh, what a beautiful speech it is. What wonderful poetry we have. That Jesus has forgiven us. That he's adopted us and that we are in him overcomers. That because of Christ we have victory. That because of Christ, whatever the world may become, whatever society will say, whatever's on the news of the day, it will not affect our victory. It does not change who's in charge. Father, we know that it does not matter who the the president or the king or the judge is. We We have the Lord who's in charge. We have victory. Oh, Father, would you remind us, those believers in the room, would you remind them of the victory? Those that feel beaten down and broken, would you remind them of their adoption? Would you remind them they're forgiven? I pray for the the brother or sister in the room who's a believer. They're a Christian. They know Christ is their Savior, but they feel guilty. Satan whispers in their ear their sin over and over and over. I pray, Father, you'd remind them they're forgiven. The slate is clean. I pray, Father, for the one that's in the room or or watching online that that right now, right now, if they stood before you face to face, they're not sure. They're not sure if their their sins are forgiven. They're not sure if you'd call them son or daughter. They're not sure if they'd be invited into the victory supper. God, I pray today that they would be sure. That they would call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. That they would say to the Lord, I no longer want to pursue the things of this world. I know it's passing away. I want to pursue the Lord.
In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing together. I want to invite you to come this morning. If you want to come to this altar and pray, maybe you want to just praise the Lord in prayer for your forgiveness, your salvation, your adoption. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a believer, and it's been a hard week. It's been a hard month. You've had a hard season, and, and you just need to be reminded you're victorious in Christ. That He'll make all things new. You want to come just pray. Maybe you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I, I don't know that I'm saved. I'm not sure my sins are forgiven. Can you tell me more about Jesus than you come? You come this morning. Don't leave this place without singing victory in Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray that you would lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us a song of invitation this morning?